Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and today we're going to talk about the terrific new book, Fastball John, with co-authors John D'Aquisto and David Jordan. D'Aquisto, as you probably know, was a first-round pick, and he spent 10 years in the majors, mostly playing for West Coast teams, although he did play briefly with the Cardinals and future Met Keith Hernandez. John, David, thanks for being here today. Um, John, I'd like thanks to start off with us, you. Thanks for having us, Oh, thank you so thanks, much. Uh, since we talked about Keith Hernandez right off the bat, um, I know you talked about him some in the book, but I'm just wondering if there's one story you can share with our listeners about uh, Keith that kind of sums him up to you. Well, Keith is a very colorful individual and a very, very good friend. And when I first got to the Cardinals, I can remember we were in San Francisco together and he wanted to take some batting practice off of me. And so we went to Millbrae High School, which was right down the street from where I lived in, in uh, San Francisco, and actually in Millbrae. And I started throwing to him with no screen at all. And he was hitting the ball and, you know, hitting it well. And I threw a couple of fastballs that were pretty good and kind of threw one by him. And he took the next pitch right off my shin. And then I drilled him in the rib cage, and uh, and he goes, he goes, what was that for? I said, well, it's for because because you hit me. I mean, you know, what do you expect? You know, if you hit me, I hit you. Doesn't that how it works? But we we had a real good uh, friendship, and uh, still do today. I see him periodically uh, when he comes in into town, and uh, uh, it's always good sitting down with Keith and having uh, having fun conversations and talking about the past as Mets fans we're we're very protective of Keith and we we love to hear good stories about him like that um want to shift over to uh, uh David here for a second and uh, uh I guess the, to the both of you Fastball John is just a terrific book and I'd like to ask David how how he got connected with John and and why did John uh decide to use you as a a, a co-author well, I mean, Johnny and I have been friends for years, and um, and, and when I began the, the InStream Sports website, you know, I was thinking that there really wasn't a lot of um, first-person athlete stories. I mean, this was years before, um, you know, the Players' Tribune ran with our concept. But uh, for the most part, Johnny and I had these fascinating conversations. We would sit and talk about, you know, the, the players of the day, whether it was Bruce Miller or, or these players that you remember from the baseball card. But not necessarily, uh, you know, they've been sort of lost to history, whether it's Bruce Miller or Don Crothers or, or um, you know, Chris Beyer or what, whatever. And, and we just had these great chats. And then, you know, I decided that it would really make a lot of sense to uh, share this with the, uh, the, the fans. So that's where we, uh, we came up with the idea for InStream Sports. And, and Johnny, you know, began writing these, these wonderful stories and, and telling me these stories, and, and we put them together. And we, we received a whole lot of accolades for it. I mean, whether it was uh, guys at ESPN or guys at Grantland or whatever, uh, everybody really took to uh, what we were doing. And then um, at a certain point, Johnny said to me, you know, I, I tried to write a book a few years ago, and I, I really, you know, want to do it now, and I want to tell my story. My story's never really been told. And um, so we kind of went from there, and it was just very easy. We had already written, you know, eight or nine or ten stories for InStream, and we kind of edited those down, and um, and we just every Friday night we would have our continental cocktails and talk for two hours, 
and then from there I would kind of edit down the conversations and, and, and add, a, add a little flair here and there in terms of uh, catchy titles, or we would talk about the music that we liked, and, and the book just kind of took off at that Now, to me, the, the book was uh, a real page-turner, and, and it's 500-plus pages long, and, and I read it in less than two days, which for me is kind of remarkable. But the one thing that that uh, really took me by surprise was the length of it. And, you know, considering that John hasn't pitched in the majors for uh, for a number of years and, and really wasn't a major star when he was pitching, was there any trepidation about uh, putting out a book that was this long? Not really. Uh, you know, it, see, what we tried to do was, I mean, everyone writes a book about the baseball player and what he did in his career. But we chose to go in a different path. And that was to write a book about a man who happened to be a baseball player and to tell the story from the beginning to the end. Instead of just talking about a baseball career, talk about what it took to stay in in the big leagues, what it took to get to the big leagues, and all the scouts and what you went through and and how what you had to do after your career and what, you know, the trials and tribulations were for not just me but other players you know, that had to experience it. So we had a good, we had a good, uh, you know, a, a good point in direction, you know, to, to do this, uh, to do this book. And, and if I, I told everything in the book that I was going to tell, we might've had 2000 pages or four <laughs> volumes, you know, it's, it's, we, we had a lot of stories, but there's some things that we, we decided that David, David, both, both of us decided to keep it, you know, keep it in in a proper context and what stays in the clubhouse um, what goes on in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse in other words for the most part i mean we we were actually at like 650 pages at one point and uh, we just had to edit down so many things and you know the book felt a lot like the conversations johnny would have on our friday nights you know we would start chatting around nine o'clock uh east coast time turn around it's 12 30 and and we was like oh my god where'd the time go and we were just having these wonderful chats and we wanted to capture that in book form so that you felt like you were just talking to Johnny. And that was, that was really important after all the, all the work and the research that we did reading all the Amazon reviews, particularly the negative Amazon reviews of all the baseball memoirs and basically sports memoirs um, overall in general. And, and we wanted to kind of see where did they go wrong and what can we do to kind of, kind of, fix that and, and create a really compelling read that, that really hasn't been seen yet. Now, a second ago, John was just talking about, John was talking about some of the, the struggles, not only of his own, but some of the other players. And the first guy who jumps to my mind from that was, was Clay Kirby, who uh, he talked about a little bit beforehand and who um, listeners may or may not know came up as, as a real hot shot in the, in the early seventies. And, they thought he was going to be the the Padres' big star, and it, and it didn't quite work out for him. And and John, uh, if I, if I remember correctly from the book, you you kind of knew him on the way up, and then you met him again on the way down. Um, if you could That's just uh, speak about him for a sec, that'd be great. Sure, Brian. Yeah, uh, when I was 18 years old, and I went down to to do a a, a, a pitching review for. Uh, for the Padres because they were interested in drafting me as a number one pick or number two pick too. Uh, Clay Kirby was there. And when I was a kid, I used to watch Clay Kirby pitch. So I was like in awe 
because Clay actually did pretty good for the Padres, you know, when they were first starting out in 69 and 70. And so here I am, I'm standing there looking at one of the guys I idolized who threw a no hitter and, and lost, you know, (laughs) go figure. But, you know, it was like, wow, he's standing there watching me pitch on the mound now. And so then when, when I later on became a San Diego Padre and then I hurt my rib cage and got sent down to Hawaii for, for a rehab assignment, Clay was there and Clay was on his way out. And we used to sit down on the couch and, and discuss about, you know, God, is this like, you know, the hotel California that you, you come in and you never go away, but it's a nice place <laughs> to play you know, I mean, if you're going to get sent to the minors, why not Hawaii, you know? And and, and, and we and were talking a, about that. Yeah, it was such a fascinating thing that, that Johnny told me about that, because really, it's this beautiful place with, with the palm trees and the weather and, and the women and whatnot, and yet every guy on that roster would be killing themselves, be, be freezing their stones off in Toronto in September. And um, with the Blue Jays, with an expansion team, they'd much rather be there. And that was so fascinating. The whole story he told me about Hawaii felt so much like Apocalypse Now. Here he was, you know, sort of a Martin Sheen-like going to sort of go get back the Colonel Kurtz of, of, of Clay Kirby. And it was such a uh, poetic and tragic story, this guy. Clay Kirby struck out 231 guys in 1971 with the Padres, won 15 games yep. for a last-place team. So, I mean, he was a somewhat accomplished major league pitcher. And, and, yep. and he really made an impression on Johnny in, in, his, in his early days in 1970. And for that to have that, you know, and one, one of the reviews, the guy from SB Nation, uh, Joe Lonick, he, he referenced that, that, you know, we, we talk about Clay Kirby and how great he was in 1970. And then here we are in 1977, he's at the end of his career. He's sort of like a zombie, like Christopher Walken in, in Deer Hunter. And, and it was really, it was a very, very sad but, but compelling story. And, and that's There's a good a lot explanation of-, of what he really looked like, too. He was a zombie. <laughs> There's a lot of great stories about people who, who um, today's fans may or, or may not know, um, you know, guys like Clay Kirby or, or Billy Travers or Steve Onaveros. But, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard not to be just taken by the uh, extensive detail you went in uh, about a matchup with Bob Gibson. And uh, it, it was both. Uh, between the lines on the field and the little bit that wasn't maybe on the field. And just wondering if you could uh, talk about your creative decisions and how you were going to best present that in the book. Well, the sure. greatest element of the Bob Gibson chapter uh, is that there's two games. There's not just the first game where Johnny faces Bob Gibson. And, and not only that, there's the firing of Charlie Fox, John, Johnny's beloved manager, and was basically his father figure for his entire time to that point in the Giants organization, you know, that occurred between both series. And that added the additional effect of illustrating the managerial decisions once Wes Western was his manager in the second game. And, um, and it's also, again, much similar to how he handled Clay Kirby. You know, Bob Gibson pops up later in the book, and I'm not going to ruin that for anybody, but it's really uh, an interesting uh, contrast in, in the two situations. It just kind of happened. I'll put it that way. I did not expect to see who I saw when I got into the elevator. I'll put it that way. (laughs) And the rest just kind of went on its own course, as we would say. Mr. Gibson was a tough competitor. And 
pitching against Bob was like pitching against Attila the Hun uh, <laughs> when he was trying to pillage and take over your village. Okay. Uh, Bob would throw at his own mother on a regular basis if she was wearing another uniform. And he threw at me a number of times, hit me a couple of times. Uh, I'll just never forget about it. It was the epitome of competition uh, between two pitchers. And the decision to leave us in the first game on the 5-4 to four, four win that I got and won we both gave up runs in the beginning of the, of the game, and they, they left us in to battle each other. And then we, re, like, retired 19 in a row. It's like, go figure. I mean, it was like, let these two at themselves. Let's have some fun watching them. You know, it was one of those deals. I'm a, I'm a read-the-book from, from first page to last page kind of guy, but I could certainly recommend that for anybody who likes to jump around in a book to seek out that section and, and read it because it was really a, a, just a, a fascinating part of the book where you went into such great detail uh, about what was, you know, it was just a, a wonderful performance by, by two guys who were kind of on the opposite end. I mean, Gibson was towards the, the end of his career, and, and you were yep. uh, not just starting out, but you were on the upswing at that point. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, he was on his way out, and I was on my way in, you know? Yeah, and the other thing, Brian, comparison. is that you, you see in a lot of books and in a lot of you know, baseball biographies and autobiographies of certain you know, game, game material where it's almost like a tra- transcript of baseball reference, and we tried our best to stay away from that, as we, we went into great detail, but also we went into what Johnny's mindset was at the time in each of those in, in each of those innings and those situations, and that was how we kind of tried to you know set ourselves apart from from the pack, so to speak. Now, I've got a, a writer question here. I mean, obviously this is this mm-hmm. is John's story, and you know just listening to him speak, it, it's really not hard to imagining that he can write some as well. Um, and I'm just wondering if we could describe the, the creative process between the two of you and what each of you brought to the project. Well, sure, Dave, you know, go ahead. What, one of the great joys of running the InStream Sports website was my author Q&As. You know, we spoke with so many great writers and sports personalities, Jonah Carey, Jeff Perlman, Marty Appel, and, and I had an additional perspective. I did my best to create extremely thorough Q&As. I read every single interview these authors conducted in the promotion of their books, and I sought to ask questions no one did and dig deeper on events that were perhaps not asked during the other dialogues and conversations. I knew what to look for, so I knew what I wanted to see in the context of Johnny telling his story. And there's so much more to it. To me, there's this Mount Rushmore of baseball books. There's Bowden, there's Bowl 4, obviously, the Jim Brosnan book, uh, Peter Goenbach's Sparky Lyle book, and the Joe Pepitone book. That's what we shot for. That's what we wanted to do in a fashion no one had done before. Yeah, and then what we also tried to accomplish was to tell the most honest and self-aware baseball story that we could come up with. We knew we had to do that. It was important. And David and I discussed that at length quite a few times. Yeah, we, we had tons of source material. Johnny had kept a diary and took notes during his time as a player, so we had supplemental material. But also, you know, I'm a huge fan of cable series, whether it's Mad Men, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, all the great literary TV dramas. We sought to create a framework for this book where the reader felt he was watching a literary cable, cable show. You know, I love reading the TV recaps from guys like Alan Seppenwall. 
Waller, Todd Vanderwerf, they possess such great ideas about storytelling. I really believe that the TV recap is our new literary criticism that can absolutely translate and enrich nonfiction storytelling. You know, when they would recap something like Mad Men, so many elements of storytelling struck out at me. One, one in particular was the importance of tone and mood and how sometimes capturing the mood of Johnny's stories plus the music created a tone unlike any other baseball memoir. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to just create another, here's the highlights of my career, I struck out Hank Aaron kind of jock memoir. We strive to create an episodic journey, a baseball story, incorporating the music of the day. I mean, you know, Brian, it's like one, one chapter is about the gossip, chatter, and innuendo you would have heard in the Major League Baseball clubhouses and hotel bars around 1976-77 with Fleetwood Mac serving as a Greek chorus of sorts. Obviously, that chapter is called Rumors. One chapter is taken from a short story Johnny told me where four young pitchers in 1976 raced their porches from San Fran to Arizona overnight to beat the spring training check-in deadline. And one song dominates the radio throughout the trip, causing doubt in Johnny's heart as he prepares to come back from a career-threatening arm injury. The name of that chapter is Mahogany. The music is important because I believe when you interview someone and play them a song, and this is part of our creative process, that not only has that song, you know, the song hasn't been played on the radio in decades, but was played nonstop for three, four weeks, 40 years ago. It's like opening a memory box. You know, it's not effective to ask, remember Satisfaction from the Rolling Stones. Someone might have heard that yesterday. When was the last time you heard Stumbling In by Susie Quattro? When was the last time you heard Dave Mason's We Just Disagree? Brandy, a non-Grease-related Olivia Newton-John song. These tunes have been somewhat lost to history, but once you hear them, it puts you right back in the spot where it left you. My Maria by B.W. Stevenson. I, thought, I played that for Johnny, and Johnny's like, oh, yeah, I was driving down San Mateo Boulevard in my Camaro with Steve Antaveros. I think it's an effective mechanism that's hardly used by anyone. You're listening to Mets 360 on Blog Talk Radio. This is Brian Jura, and I'm talking to the co-authors of Fastball John. That's John D'Aquisto and, and David Jordan. And, uh, John, I believe you were getting ready to chime in on something? Yeah, I was, was going to say that that was one of the key mechanisms that we used was the music. Uh, every time we would discuss something, we would talk about a song, and it would trigger like a scene in my in my head. Uh, I I would recant some of the things that I wrote down and gave to David and add to it. Oh yeah, I remember this. I remember when Steve Onaveris that I, w- I went up to Steve and asked him if I could use his bat when I hit my first home run. And he was my roommate. He was a guy that I, I, I kind of grew up in baseball with. Every time we went to, to, play, uh, to play in the instructional league in Arizona, Steve was my roommate. We lived together. And, you know, and being able to use his bat to hit my first home run was absolutely stellar. It was the only one I hit, <laughs> but it was still stellar. Now, now speaking of home runs, um, you have a connection to to a guy that uh, uh, Mets fans are, are probably associate a little bit with home runs, and that's Dave Kingman. Uh, you were teammates yes. in the very beginning of your career with the uh, with the Giants. Now, now Dave had uh, a rather let, let's just call it a colorful career. I'm wondering if you yes. have uh, any anecdotes about uh, Dave Kingman that you could share with us. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Dave and I are good friends, by the way. So, it. it uh, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize this, but Dave Kingman's a great guy. He is a great guy. It, it was like if you went into a barroom fight, you took Dave Kingman with you, you'd win. Uh, he was <laughs> like, uh, he was so strong and quick. Uh, 
he would hit balls out of sight. Uh, and one story I can remember when we we had a night game. This is so funny. We had a night game in Phoenix uh, in spring training. And Dave hit a ball that went straight up past the lights. And he took off running. And the ball went so far up, straight straight up, it came down and landed in front of the plate. Nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. It was gone that long. And he ended up on third base with a triple, and the ball landed right in front of home plate. Now, this was the most unreal thing I ever saw. And also, I don't know if you knew this, but the, there was a stripe painted up in Olympic Stadium, in, in, in the Stadium Olympiad in Montreal. Dave Kingman hit one out of the roof, out of the hole in the – because they didn't cover the roof yet. They, right, they right. had to fix it. He hit it out of the roof, and they didn't know if it was fair or foul. And so they decided that they better paint a stripe from the foul pole all the way down so they could tell. <laughs> oh, that's tremendous. His nickname was Mooney, Brian, because he hit well, Mooney. I'm, I'm sorry, say that again? Mooney. His nickname oh, okay. was Mooney, Mooney, <laughs> because he hit, he hit moonshots. And he also, his other we, we... nickname was King Kong. So that's how strong he was. And when when he played on the Mets, he had two Kong, which I heard that he didn't like very much, and Sky King, yeah. which I I think Sky was uh, he yep. was okay with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now now I'd like to to shift gears here just just a little bit, and you know we, sure. we've been talking about your career while you were a player, but in the book you also talk about your your post playing career, and and one of the yeah. things and, and and you do talk about it in the book, but I I, I was left wanting more. And, and that was your, your work in, in sports motion analytics. And I'm just wondering yes. if you can expound anything more on, on what that company did and, and who some of the, sure. the major league teams who were, were in on that early. Oh, absolutely. Uh, back in 1989, I was asked to go to work for a company called Aerial Life Systems, which is uh, a company that was owned by Don Brucker, the inventor of the contact lens and uh, Dr. Gideon Ariel, who is the father of biomechanics. And also, Gideon sit, sits on the board of the Olympic, uh, uh, the Olympic found, uh, Foundation. You know. And um, so at that particular stage, when I went to work for Gideon, I, I fell in love with his system called the APOS system, which is the Aerial Performance Analysis System, which was a computer-generated program that showed the actual performance of an athlete and measured all the torques, vectors, and strengths and weaknesses of that athlete. And so I started doing uh, research with Gideon, and we started to develop different protocols for baseball, and I fine-tuned some of the golf and the tennis uh, programs and then some Olympic sports uh, that Gideon favored, like uh, uh, javelin, shot put, uh, in fact, he was the one that was responsible for bringing Al Orta in, into winning his medal at 44 years of age. And so wow. at, at that particular stage, my assignment, I was uh, director of sports marketing for, for him. And I uh, took the system and, and went to uh, the Toronto Blue Jays camp, uh, the Atlanta Braves camp, Oakland A's camp, Chicago Cubs, uh, we hit a number of teams, just to make a long story short. But out of those two teams... Oh, I'm 
I'm afraid we might might have lost uh, John for a second. John, are you there? Okay, Okay. well, uh, David, while we wait for uh, John to get back, um, let let me ask you something. John, are you back? John? Yeah, I'm here. here. We lost you for a second. Okay, you you were running down the list of teams that you had uh, uh, contacted about the, the system, and then you were getting ready to say about two of them. Yes, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays and, and the Atlanta Braves were the two teams that went to the World Series that year. And, and you know, it was kind of strange that, you know, the two teams that took the most interest in what we were doing and in our work and showing them what had to be corrected uh, was actually applied in their game strategies. Galen Sisko happened to be the pitching coach with the Toronto Blue Jays, and he was my pitching coach in Montreal. So that's how I got in there. Uh, Bobby Cox, that was that was an easy one there. And Leo Mazzoni and I were were teammates in Phoenix. So I got in there real easy. But what happened was there were things that developed with the analytics and, and the analysis. I must have done thousands of, of pitchers and hitters and showing, showing their strengths and weaknesses. And I had uh, John Daly was asking me on the golf side, to send video cassettes to him. He would send them to me and I would do an analysis for him, send him back. Here's what you're doing wrong. And this is when he was hitting the ball really well. And then we, we lost track of each other. I stopped working for Ariel and, you know, and things changed for him. You know, a lot of things, a lot of things can be utilized with this tool. It's a great tool. And there's different levels of the tool now that have come to the forefront. But uh, I continued on from there and, and continued to get my degree in, in uh, exercise science and physiology and uh, in applied biomechanic, uh, bi- biomechanical engineering. And Gideon signed off on me for four years' worth of work as a Ph.D. To me, that's just a, just, just a, a fascinating story. And, and the fact that, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, that the, the Blue Jays and the Braves uh, – early adapters, and then what do they do? They ended up going to the World Series, and it just goes to show you that there's something there, something worthwhile. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask a, a question. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to ask mm-hmm. uh, a question specifically to, to David at this point, and, and David, uh, mm-hmm. uh, another author, I guess, question for you. And it, It's no secret that uh, John had some uh, legal trouble after his playing career, and uh, I'm just curious, as, as a co-author, how do you handle that? You know, in reading the passages from the from the book, John doesn't pull any punches. Doesn't sound like he's trying to hide anything. But still, as as a as a, a more neutral observer, you've got to 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 dig deeper and verify, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, this whole this whole project began because John felt that he wasn't able to tell his side of the story in the '90s, and we wanted to at least give him that platform to tell his side of what happened, what went down, and, and why he was wronged. On the, other, on the other side of that is that I have to kind of verify as much as I can of that. What does that mean? That means I reach out to his lawyers that, that represented him at the time. That means I, I dig deep into the legal dockets. That, that means I go into you know, newspapers.com and I'm going through files and, and, and articles from, from the time to see what happened and compare that to what I heard from, from, his, legal, from his legal counsel. So there, there was a lot of there's an awful lot of fact-checking throughout the entire book, and, and specifically in those chapters as well. All right. Um, um, one of the things that I've seen from the book, you know, just the, the online reception has just been overwhelmingly positive from what I've seen. 
Now, I'm, I'm sure that I have not paid up and kept as much attention to that as, as you two have. And just wondering if you could uh, uh, expound on that a little bit and talk about what the overall uh, reaction to the book has been and if there's been any reviews that you either particularly loved or particularly, I don't know, hurt. Well, whenever someone compares your baseball story to the greats of the genre, that's rewarding. You know, we've had two or three reviewers say it's one of the best books since Ball Four, which is highly, highly flattering to hear. You know, and, and to have Peter Golenbach, who's basically in the Hall of Fame of baseball memoirs, you know, to have him declare our book was extraordinary. He can go out on social media and, and say such wonderful things about our work. I mean, that, that, what's better than that? Now, can you talk a few minutes? I think I'm trying to remember where the, the source was that I saw, saw it. I'm, I, I want to say maybe it's, it's Bleacher Report uh, had, had a review, and they were one of the ones that I saw, I think, that compared it to Ball Four. Um, well, we had a, Joe, Joe Lanick at um, SB Nation uh, went on Twitter and basically said it was the best book since Ball Four, which was fantastic. Um, and also, uh, I know Johnny had an interview with uh, Bruce Markerson, at Hardball Times, who uh, they had a nice Q&A, and he had mentioned uh, Ball Four as well. Um, yeah, it was just it was overwhelming, to be quite honest, to see see such great things written written about our work. And uh, we've had a couple people and, and some players who have come back and, and said how much they enjoyed the book as well. I know they've been in touch with Johnny and, and been saying such great things about it. So it's it's been it's been highly rewarding to hear uh, hear all the accolades. Well, this half hour has just about flown by. We've only got about 20 seconds left. I'm wondering if you can uh, tell everyone where they can get the book. Go ahead, uh, David. We can, uh, yeah, we can, it, you can buy the book on Amazon, uh, either either print, trade paperback, or uh, via Kindle. And you can also get it uh, in Barnes & Noble online. Yes. It, it's a terrific book. I can't uh, recommend it enough. Uh, it's Fastball John, written by John D'Acquisto and, and David Jordan, at, uh, available at all of the uh, the, the usual places. And uh, I just want to thank uh, uh, David and uh, John for, for joining us and, and having a, a great half-hour podcast with us. Thanks so much. Oh, Bill. you're right. welcome, thank Brian. You. All right, have a great Thanks day. Thanks for having us. Thanks. All right, Take thank care. you. Thanks for listening Bye-bye. to Mets 360 on Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>